You are listening to Hey Kids Comics. Mr. Lister, sir, he enjoys it too. Oh, thank you so much. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey Kids Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, lovelies. Hello. Even lovely. changing it. <laughs> you can't do the same thing every single week. Oh, hello, everybody. We used to. Go on. It makes it our gimmick. Hello. Hello. Everyone. Hello, every, every. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. How long are we doing this? You're confusing me. <laughs> you screwed up the introduction. You screwed it up. Don't change what works. You were 15 when we started doing this. You're 18 now. So I'm not to mess with things that work, am I? No, 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 you're not. Okay. Anyway, right. Stuff this week. Yes. We went to Thought Bubble. We did. In uh, Leeds. Well, you went to Thought Bubble. Did, where did you go? I, I was in a, the queue in Thought Bubble <laughs> all day. Yes. I did not get to enjoy no. the festivities. Because the queuing system... I mean, we're British, so we're, this is one thing we know. It's how to queue. It's how to queue. But uh, the, the organisation for Matt Fraction and David Ayer was lacking, should we say. Yes. So it ended up that my, poor Michael ended up queued up for most of the day. Five hours in total. But I showed them your card... Yeah. That you made me out of Hawkeye 3. And I got Hawkeye 3 signed because that issue meant something. It was one of my favourite comic book stories. Yes. They both were very impressed with your card, but both of them looked at me and said, is this it? When I went with just one comic for them to sign. Yeah. I said, no, I wanted something signed that, you know, actually means something, not just a stack of comics. Hmm. And it's then that Fraction said, oh, right, do you want me to personalise it? I said, that would be great. And he said, and who made you the card? I said, my son. So he said, oh, I should have signed it to him as well. I said, yeah, sure. Fair enough. So Hawkeye 3 yeah. is signed to both of us. I did explain to David Ager that there was no copyright infringement. Right, right. He didn't make me buy my own <laughs> birthday card. But they both seemed quite impressed with it. So so it was quite quite good. Quite enjoyed that. So the only other people I really met in celebrity status, and I use the word celebrity loosely because it's comics, Mm -hmm. Fiona Staples. Right. She seemed nice enough. Stephen Lester actually looked about 10. (laughs) Which isn't far. I would have said 12. Fair enough. It's not far of the mark. I I met Matt Fraction and David Ager. And that's it. Yeah. um, I I got to see out to Robert Llewellyn again. Well, uh, yeah, and I met um, Ethan Nicole. Oh, so we did Axe Cop, you got a sketch? I did get a sketch. We need a picture of that and we'll put it on Facebook. It's already up. Is it? Yes. Excellent. So um, you can have a look at that. I would have got Be- uh, Becky Cloonan's new books, but the queue was huge in that one hour I got to wander. <laughs> to wander around. Um, and um, Raphael Albuquerque was out of my price range. Was he? Yes. He charging a lot of money. A lot of money. Right. Okay. I mean, I got to chat to Sean Phillips briefly. 
Yeah. I mean, along the lines of, have you got Fertile issue 18? I've not got that one. <laughs> no, I've only got the first issue in the trades. But if you go and buy it from these other stores, I'll sign it for you. <laughs> Thanks. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, it was very nice. Yeah. But he didn't have what I wanted to buy, unfortunately. Fair enough. You know, what can you do? Met, met the lovely Stephen again. Yes. Hello, Stephen. He was going for the handlebar this time. Yes, he was going for, he was doing Movember. So he was going for the pawn stash. Yeah. He was rocking the pawn stash. He was. Uh, lovely Dave Walker. Yeah. Was also there. A couple of other people said hello. Yes. Said hello to listen to the show. It's very nice of them. Mm-hmm. We appreciate you. Thank you very much. If you're listening to this, we met you at Thought Bubble. Hello. Hello. Uh, the best cosplayer was Lion Cat. Okay. Well, they were brilliant, weren't they? I'm on one of the pictures of that cosplay. So you could be on. You could be that guy on Facebook who's just in the background of a photo who doesn't know yeah, yeah. that he's been looked at by lots of people all over the world. I mean. It's the back of my head. But how do you know it's you? Do you recognise the back I of your head? I recognise the two people who were standing next to me. Uh, well, Lion Cat and the other guy from No, Zag. we were way down in the distance. Right. And as we were queuing for David Aja, the in our sketch group, we all formed a little group and we were all talking to each other right. in the five hours we were there. On the whole, I didn't really see too many outstanding cosplayers this year, did you? No. Lion Cat and um, the mercenary guy from Saga, whose name I've completely forgotten. They were good. But last year, Spider-Man was there with Gwen and Murray Jane, and that was a great yeah. cosplay, Gwen and Murray Jane. I mean, Spider-Man could have been anybody. <laughs> I mean, he looked alright. He wasn't like fat Spider-Man or anything. <laughs> or like Boba Fett was. Yeah, like little porky Boba Fett. And the word was Judge Dredd this year. I saw pictures the other on Sunday. Alright, so we, did, we missed him. Alright, But it was a jolly good time, and we thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I like Thought Bubble. So it was um, very nice. Picked up some comics in the cheapy bins. Mm-hmm. So that was Godzilla. Nice. Yes, I need to get you number five. But yeah, I picked up yeah. all of Godzilla that we covered on the show yeah. in the 50p bins. I went to Michael and said, I bought you a present! And Michael was like, hey! And then he went, where's the last one? <laughs> so I picked up one to four yeah. and not number five. But okay. and, and then after that, when we got home? What happened when we got home? It was Doctor Who. Oh, the day of the Doctor. Are we yeah. going to talk about that on the show? If you want to. Well, what is there to talk about? It was very good. I enjoyed it. Was, it. it was good. Next bits of business. Uh, John Hurt. <laughs> Is a doctor. Yes, yes. Alas. And it's recorded. That's that's good. Alas. He is now an official doctor. They have wasted a regeneration. I'm glad we've got that recorded. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of that ending? The ending? The ending. Um, was awesome. Oh, that ending. That, uh, the actual ending, cameo ending. Right, yeah. Shall we just talk about it? Was it? If you've not watched it, we're going to spoil it for you. Okay, we'll give you ample warning. What did I do when Tom Baker showed up? Well, the pictures are up on Facebook. Are they? Did yeah. you take a photo? Yeah. No, you, you, you jumped up kicking and screaming and pointing at the TV. Did they just... Like, it's Tom! Like a five-year-old on Christmas. It was Tom! My doctor. I know! Well, he wasn't the doctor. He's the predictable choice. But I was... Seven, 1972 I was born. Let's think about that for a minute. <laughs> he became the Doctor in 1974. He was the Doctor all throughout my formative years. Yeah. There was no one else. He did it for seven years. And then he just showed up. And it was, it's Tom. <laughs> and I was, I was like a five-year-old, wasn't I? I just yeah. sat pointing at the screen going, Tom, it's Tom, it's Tom Baker. And then the next day I heard Colin Baker having a moan about it. 
who was, yeah. of course, the sixth Doctor. And he was, was like, that the jokey video they did? No, no, that was really funny. Right. The five-ish Doctors is very funny. Right. It was an interview I read with him, or maybe in that BBC Three thing that was appalling, I can't remember. But anyway, he's having um, a go with him saying, well, I think we should have all been involved. But I was like, no, Colin, look, I like you and all. Yeah. But you wouldn't have had that impact on me and, I'm presuming, the most of the audience that Tom Baker had. If you think about it, the people who are watching it now with their children yeah. are the ones that grew up watching it when Tom Baker was the Doctor. Yeah. Aren't they? Primarily, they'll be my age. So, having him in it will have had more of an impact than having, say, Colin Baker in it, is mm. my thinking. Because I just sat there with <laughs> I think you and your mum just were so busy laughing at me, you didn't actually hear the show. Oh, we were paying attention to the show. Multitasking. Multitasking, yes. I did like I did like it. I did enjoy it. I thought it was quite clever. Do you want to hear my theory on it? What, that he wasn't the Doctor? No, no, no. I don't care about that. My theory is, right. I've read Capaldi's only going to do it for a year, and now I'd read this before Bleeding Cool did it. Right. I can't remember what. Okay. My theory is, he's going to spend the next series searching for Gallifrey. Right. He will find Gallifrey as a reward for his saving of Gallifrey. And then go be the curator. That would be awesome, but no. And they will give him a new regeneration cycle but they will force a regeneration to kick it off like they did for Patrick Troughton. Patrick Troughton didn't die. Patrick Troughton had a regeneration forced upon him into John Pertwee and then they exiled him on Earth. So the the Time Lords can force a regeneration. So that's my thinking. And also it's cyclical. I think Moffat will leave then as well. Because yeah. if you think about it, Russell T. Davis did a series with Christopher Atherton and then three series and a bunch of specials with David Tennant. Moffat will have done three series and a couple of specials with Matt Smith and then a series with Peter Capaldi. Fair enough. So it all works out. And by the end of it, he will have left it in the same place where it was in 1989. Right. Gallifrey's back, Time Lords are back, the Doctor's wandering time and space just having fun. Fair enough. That's my thinking. Anyway, I could be completely wrong about that, and if you don't like Doctor Who, we've just bored you for another five minutes after we spent that extensive episode all about Doctor Who a couple of weeks ago. But anyway, moving on, should we do some emails? We should. Our first email is entitled G.I. Joe and the Batman. It's Tom Panarese. Hi, Tom. Tom, hurry up and do more episodes of Taking Flight. I have officially reprimanded him. Okie doke. <laughs> Hello, Laylands. Hello, Tom. As a regular listener and semi-regular emailer, I regret that I completely fell down on the job and just about caught up, stopping halfway through episode 150 to comment on a few past episodes, all of which were excellent. See? See, I didn't edit. Okay. I said excellent. That's very good. I won't cover everything because of your recent edict to keep emails short, but I did at least want to comment on a few of them. First, G.I. Joe. We need to do more G.I. Joe, don't we? <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't state the importance of G.I. Joe, and to a lesser extent, the Transformers, to my comic collecting career. I picked up my first issue of G.I. Joe, issue 55, in late 1986, and within a few months was a regular reader. Being a regular reader didn't last very long, and ended sometime in the summer of 1987, when baseball and not comics became my main focus. But it was through reading that title that I really got to know my local comic shop, a store that, to my knowledge, is still there. A couple of pieces of trivia and recommendations for future reading. Issue 2 is a mostly solo Snake Eyes story, and at the time, G.I. Joe was hot, and it was worth one and a half times more than issue 1, which, as I'm sure you know, was due to a low print run. 
I owned a second printing of the book, as was also the case with issues 26 and 27, The Origin of Snake Eyes. These showed us the connection between Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, and they both served in the Vietnam War, and actually showed some pretty realistic war scenes. Well, at least for a kid's comic, this was a few years before The Norm. And I do like that, though, because he slid in his his in-country podcast, which is a podcast he does about that series, The Norm. And he subtly mentioned it in his email. For, that's very good. It was impressive, that, wasn't it? That was almost professional. <laughs> I applaud you, Mr. Panneries. My hat is... Consider it doffed. Tipped. <laughs> yes, consider my hat tipped. <laughs> Imagine I'm wearing my fedora. Yeah. Because it's audio, so as far as you guys are concerned, I am wearing my fedora. Do you don't have a little bowler hat to doff? No, no, I don't do bowler hats. Oh, fair enough. No. Not even to doff. No, 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 I do fedoras. You tip a fedora. Well, I would. I have tipped my hat to him. Okay. There you go. My fedora that's covered in webs and dust because yes. I'm, you know, an intrepid, globe-trotting archaeologist in my spare time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Tom's email continues. Finally, there is a GI Joe yearbook issue three. Yearbook is what they call the annuals, where Larry Harmer does a sequel to Silent Interlude. This time with Scarlet and Storm Shadow saving Snake Eyes from Cobra headquarters. I have other recommendations but I'd recommend those. Well, we are considering another G.I. Joe show, so if you want to send your recommendations along with Luke and David Weedo, we will put them into the into the pot mm-hmm. and maybe draw them out. Tom continues, your Batman two-parter was excellent as well. I say, I'm really not getting bored of all this prayers. <laughs> uh, do, you see, do you see why? Once I've started saying it's just gone to my head, hasn't it? That's what I was like. I yes. remember when I was like you. <laughs> and I really showed why your cross-generational idea is so superb. By seeing your older picks mixed with Michael's newer ones, I feel that we got a good look at not only the Dark Knight's career, but at Bat Fandom's career, in a sense. I tend to fall a little more on your side of things, Andrew, having collected Batman mostly in the early 90s, and applaud your picks of Robin Dies at Dawn, which was one of yours. Absolutely. Yes. Robin dies at home with a Michael. And the dead shot ricochet, both of which have been favourites of mine for well over 20 years. Well, I've said before that Mr. Tom Panneries is a man of wealth and taste. Because he agrees with us. Yes. <laughs> By the way, you mentioned at one point that while Batman kept Dick's old room intact for the most part, there seems to be no trace of young Jason at Wayne Manor. There's a reason for this. During a lonely place of dying, Batman was going through a terrible grieving process and had more or less removed any trace of Jason having lived in the manor from the premises. In fact, it took Tim Drake showing up and putting on the Robin costume to knock some sense into Bruce and make him realise that Batman needs Robin. Anyway, I said I'd make this short, and it is. For me, anyway. Brevity has never been one of my strengths. Just ask my wife. Congratulations on 150 episodes, and I'm looking forward to the next 150. I don't know if we'll be around in another 150 shows. Oh, I'm sure we will. You think? But yeah. thank you very much, Tom. That was very much appreciated. In another 150 shows, you'll be, still be going, go to university, and I'll be going, oh, can't be asked. <laughs> You're doing so. If you think you're staying off next year and doing nothing, you are sadly mistaken. Next email, some say <laughs> that he is an astonishingly awesome man for reasons that we will come to in but a minute. And that his awesomeness cannot be contained by the one country he's in. He has to spread it across the lands. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetta. Issue 150, Sweet Christmas. Is I, the I don't think we covered that just yet. No, 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 no. He's preempted our Christmas show, isn't he? he is. With a bit of Sweet Christmas. There's a tease for you, lovely listeners. 150 times Andrew plus Michael equals a whole lot of podcasts. I do like that he didn't say a whole lot of quality podcasts. <laughs> Luke knows where it's at. (laughs) 
Great show, fellas. A few quick comments. Loved hearing Andy's secret origin and a descent into a life of crime. Have you guys had a chance to check out Rob Kelly's amusingly titled books, Hey Kids Comics? Yes, we have. (laughs) It's a collection of essays about the love of comics, including quite a lot of secret origins. The stories you told on this episode would be perfect for a second volume. Uh, From your mouth to Rob Kelly's ears. Young Mr. Giaconetti. We have, we have mentioned Hey Kids Comics because it, it is a fantastic book and we heartily recommend it. One of them made me cry. It was very sad. Luke continues, I don't have the same connection to Marvel Tales that you do, but I do have a single issue of that series, Marvel Tales 201, which reprints Marvel Team Up issue 65, the US debut of Captain Britain. How funny is that? On a side note, I would hate to be the random thief that broke into an apartment only to find that both Spider-Man and Captain Britain live there. Plus there's a backup strip with Peter Porker, the spectacular (laughs) Spider-Ham. Do you remember him? I do. Okay. Sadly, Michael, there is no Ghost Rider cartoon, continues Luke. There was a Silver Surfer cartoon, which ran for one season. I'm a big fan of Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends, personally. Did you know the original concept for the Amazing Friends was it to be Iceman and the Human Torch, but the Human Torch was verboten on TV at the time after the Fantastic Four cartoon debacle. So Firestar was created to replace him. I did know that, and I never got it. Fair enough. They were, they were what's-his-name? The original thing was they were worried that people would try to mimic the human torch bursting into flames. By setting themselves so on fire. So they replace him with a character that bursts into flames. Maybe they were worried about the human torch bursting into flames on the Fantastic Four cartoon where they replaced him with Herbie the Robot. Right. But the other thing I've heard is that human torch was actually optioned for a separate project. Yeah. So when they did that FF cartoon they had to replace him with Herbie. Right. That's what I've heard. Could oh. be wrong. And I could have sworn I've seen Ghost Rider in a 90s cartoon on Fox Kids. He doesn't say that you didn't. He just said there isn't a Ghost Rider cartoon. It could have been in Hulk. It may have been. I don't know. I don't remember him. But I, I'm not I, saying that he wasn't I, there. I remember the Silver Surfer one now, actually, because I, I, I still have one of the toys. Yeah, you do. You have a Silver Surfer. Yeah. Action figure, don't you? Doll. Doll. Oh. <laughs> the G.I. Joe member Cover Girl, continues Luke, is exactly that. A Cover Girl. Specialist Courtney Krieger was a fashion model before she desired more of her life and joined the army, eventually being recruited to the Joe team. She has an aptitude for heavy armour and became a tank operator, often behind the wheel of the Wolverine armoured missile vehicle, her toy being packed with the Wolverine. She was often paired up in the motor pool with the scruffy chauvinist Clutch, the Joe's main wheelman, and they would make digs at each other. Thanks for the comic talk, fellas. Looking forward to some Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Luke. Aside... Guys, if there's ever a DD, DV, a DV, if there's ever some VD that you want from an America, <laughs> that's not what he said. If there's ever a DVD you want from over here, let me know and we'll work something out. Well, this led, lovely listeners, to correspondence between Luke and I. I got in touch with Luke and said that over here in the UK, we do no longer do the uh, Blu-ray DVD combo pack. Which saddens me deeply. Which, which does sadden us deeply, because we have a DVD player in our bedroom, but I have a Blu-ray player downstairs. So I like both. So if I ever want to watch Pacific Rim, I have to interview you, have to you watch guys. It yeah. Downstairs, yeah. Whereas I don't, because I said I wanted to buy Man of Steel in Blu-ray DVD. Yeah. And Luke sent me Man of Steel in mm-hmm. Blu-ray and DVD, and he did not ask for any money. Which we noticed because you don't seem to be aware of the the volume control on the remote. Oh, it was. It needs to be loud, dude. <laughs> that much destruction porn <laughs> needs to be loud. I wonder how much it cost. 
To rebuild. Yeah. Probably a lot of money. Probably. If it were real. Uh, so that was very generous and very nice of him. I do much appreciate it. And I, I, I don't think I have adequately expressed how, um, how gra- gratified I was. However, he also sent us a letter. An actual physical letter. Pen on paper. Pen on paper that says, Andy, hope you and the family enjoy Man of Steel, which I did. Angela, not so much. Did she not? No. Your, your sister seems to think it was okay. Did she not fall asleep through No, it? no, she watched it all. Okay. Still not her favourite. Her favourite Lois Lane still Terry Hatcher. I know I am looking forward to re-watching a 10. The little bonus which he sent us is a G.I. Joe, a real American hero, three and three quarter inch Action Man toy. It's very specific though. It is, yeah. Action Man was part of the Toys R Us exclusive six pack and the Joe special unit Night Force. Such a neat homage. This type of figure is now the classic A-R-A-H toys were constructed with an O-ring body construction and typical articulation. This modern Joe toys no longer use O-rings and have a lot more articulation articulation I've seen in modern Star Wars and Marvel Universe toys, but you can't beat old school Joe. Enjoy, best of the family, Luke. And, and you know, I liked getting Man of Steel and I was, I was very gratified, but actually when that fell out the envelope and we're looking at it now, lovely listeners, I have stood him on the shelf next to Bane and the Bat Signal and a rather beaten up Batman. I've posted a picture on Facebook if you want to have a look at it. And I've, I've stood him on the bookshelf and it's, it's awesome. I really do like that G.I. Jota. Do you know what they are? Yeah. The little three and a quarter inch 18 figures. That was them. It's pretty much the same mold. Well, looking at them, it's exactly the same as a few years ago. I got massive boxes full of little action figures like that. Yeah. And they were exactly the same mold as that, and they were all soldiers and terrorists. But and just generic ones. Yeah. Nah, so they were knockoff G.I. Joe's, probably. Yeah. I would from Japan. Probably. Or something. You know, just so Godzilla could stamp all of them. <laughs> Oh, I got a Godzilla toy and stomped them all over. That would be fantastically awesome, wouldn't it? Oh, speaking of which, so thank you very much to Luke. We need to finish that off first, because yes. I really did appreciate my G.I. Joe toy, which is now sat on my bookshelf. It's, it's awesome. Thank you very much, Luke. On the way back from Thought Bubble, Michael and I got talking about oh, yes. serious, yes. serious stuff. And maybe Luke could probably help with this and David Weiss from Tom Panneries and anyone else who's a big G.I. Joe fan. Well, it wasn't G.I. Joe, was it? I thought you said G.I. Joe Godzilla. Oh, no, that was in the show last week, wasn't it? It was Avengers. Avengers, it was yeah. Hulk first. On the way back, Michael just was sat there, and all of a sudden he just said, who'd win in a fight between the Hulk and Godzilla? And honestly, <laughs> I could not come up with a winner. Because, yes, the madder Hulk gets, the stronger Hulk gets. Yeah. Which means, theoretically, there is no upper limit to his strength. Yeah. But Godzilla only has to take the fight into the water, doesn't he? Now, the Hulk can hold his breath for a great deal of time and can swim, but, but he's out of his element yeah. in water. Whereas Godzilla could just be smacking him around a lot, couldn't he, with his tail? Mm. That kind of thing. Unless the Hulk turned into Bruce Banner and created a new oxygen destroyer, which killed him in the first film. What, in the middle of the water? It's not likely, is it? Well, the oxygen destroyer needs to be in the water. Right. So if he builds it beforehand... Yes. But then... If Godzilla's attacking, he can't calm down and turn into Bruce Banner. That's true. So we would have to know that Godzilla was there. In the first place. Yeah. Right. So we didn't come up with an answer for this one. No, we didn't. And, we, then, and then we made it even more difficult. And then we made it Avengers. even more difficult. Who would win in a fight between the Avengers and Godzilla? Yeah. And this and was Godzilla even more... Godzilla could call him back up. Yeah, well, no, 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 you added that little wrinkle later. Yeah. Initially, I was like, I think the Avengers would have the upper hand here. Because the Avengers have Thor, Iron Man, and the Hulk. Yeah. So, essentially, though, you've got three mighty powerhouses going up against Godzilla. And then we also threw Giant Man into the mix, didn't we? The yeah. theory being Giant Man could at least 
embiggen himself. But he can't have the same strength. To the same size as Godzilla, but that doesn't increase his strength, does it? Yeah. So we figured Captain America's a pretty good tactician. So we gave that one to the Avengers, even though we couldn't come up with who would win between the Hulk and Godzilla. We figured the Avengers versus Godzilla, it would go on the Avengers' side. Yeah. And both of us agreed with that, didn't we? Yeah. But then, Michael, <laughs> who could not accept his beloved Godzilla losing, even though he did accept that, all right, maybe the Avengers would win in such a battle. He does lose in every film. Yeah. He said, right, well, Godzilla can call him reinforcements. Yeah. So suddenly Godzilla's calling him Mothra <laughs> and Mecha Godzilla and all these others that he's reaming off. And I'm like, well, how many bloody Avengers are there? Because then Thor... All right, you bring out the entire Avengers roster with your backups and your other team. Because you're split, you're dividing your forces if Godzilla can call in reinforcements. Yeah. So, and again, we didn't come up with a satisfying conclusion. So we decided that Avengers versus Godzilla, Godzilla would lose. But Hulk versus Godzilla, we considered pretty much 50-50. That could go either way. Yeah. But Godzilla and his A-team... Godzilla and co. But yeah, Godzilla and company... Versus the entirety of the Avengers. We thought that would be a pretty interesting mashup. It would be. But, you Someone know. should make that movie. Yeah, we should make that movie. We should. We should. I mean, with characters that resemble <laughs> the Avengers, but oh. aren't actually the Avengers. Maybe we could bring the two together, a Toho Marvel production. But then, didn't you say Justice League versus Godzilla? Oh, yeah. I'd then you went <laughs> the Justice League route... And I actually thought, well, in that case, you don't need the Justice League. Superman, Superman. could take out Godzilla. Mm. So that's the only problem. That's the Superman equation. Then you're it? thinking of old Superman. What about New 52 Superman? Is New 52 Superman not as powerful as old Superman? I don't know. Right, whereas Golden Age Superman would just fry the bugger yeah. and not give it any second thought, would he? Damn Golden Age Superman would throw him out of a window. Yeah. <laughs> and have no consideration for the fact that he's just killed him. Yeah. Whereas New 52 Superman would probably throw him out of a window and then whine about it to his girlfriend later. That's possible, isn't it? Possibly, yeah. Yeah, see, the Superman equation just sets it on its head. It does. Basically, Superman could wipe out Godzilla, Mothra, and the entire Godzilla and company. Superman's off-planet. All right, so the the Avengers, the Justice League minus Superman. Yeah. See, they've still got Aquaman and Wonder Woman. What's Aquaman going to do? Aquaman in the water, dude. Godzilla takes the fight into the water like he did with the Avengers, thinking he's got the upper hand. Aquaman's there. Trident in hand. What if he just stays on land, though? If he stays on land, Aquaman's still pretty powerful. Just as long as he's avoiding the coast. They've got Wonder Woman. Okay. Who is an Amazon. Yes, but he's a giant. So is Zachary. Wonder Woman as an Amazon more powerful than Thor, who is a Thunder God? Ah. Ah, see, Thunder, Thor versus Wonder Woman. Yes, but... Would be awesome. If you go on the Marvel movies, is he a god or is he an alien? Well, in the Marvel movies, he's an alien. Yeah. They hammered that over your head in that recent episode of S.H.I.E.L.D., didn't yes. they? He's not a god! We're not offending anybody! He's an alien! <laughs> Aliens pretending to be god. Yeah, even better! <laughs> so anyway, that's what we discussed on the way home from Thought Bubble. If you have any thoughts... Yes. ...on who would win in a battle between any of those people, taking Superman off the table, because... Obviously, I think Superman could nail Godzilla to the hat, to the to the moon. Mm. Basically, that's all he need to do, isn't it? <laughs> Godzilla still needs to breathe, doesn't he? Well, he? He did sleep underwater for millions of years. Maybe he doesn't need to breathe then. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. I still think Superman would win in okay. that particular instance. But the others, autumn season, go for your life. What about Space Godzilla? Let me take the fight. Space, space Godzilla versus Adam Warlock. <laughs> And then Sea Godzilla, and then Ice Godzilla. Godzilla vs. Darkseid! Godzilla vs. Galactus. Oh! 
But see, Galactus would just eat the planet that Godzilla is on. Yeah, but he's not actually that big. Right. Depending on the size. If you went for current 2014 Godzilla, they might be the same size. Would they? Mm. Is Godzilla as big as Galactus now? The Godzilla they're going for at the moment is the biggest. Right. Been. Do you know we could spend an entire show doing verses, but we've only done two emails and we're half an hour in. <laughs> so we're going to knock emails on the head for until next time. We've plenty of them, but keep sending them. We do like them. There might um, be an email show coming soon. Probably after Christmas. Yeah. I would imagine we'll have to do an email show to catch up with some of these. Because we've got some excellent emails from Sean Engel, David Gutierrez, Caris Franklin, Jason Trenner, Luke Giaconetti's in there, Luke Kyle Benning, Chris Tyler, taking you to task for Amazing Friends. <laughs> Your Disney oh, yeah, Amazing right, Friends, right, yeah. dude. Uh, and lots, lots of others. Gus Shaw, Spencer Thompson, Ian McGregor, Josh Allen plenty of others so if we've not read your email yet we will get to it we'll probably do an email show uh, mixed up with our annual this is what we got for Christmas show yeah in between Christmas and New Year uh, we'll take a quick break and plug a show and we'll be right back mm-hmm. the Vietnam War a conflict that changed America of those who served many came back irrevocably changed while many did not come back at all this is their story Marvel Comics presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. just finished eating some chocolate biscuit mm-hmm. oh well never mind with our third week at looking at the difference between DC and Marvel in the silver age of comics i.e. comics published in between 1956 and the publication of Showcase issue 4 and 1970 and the introduction of comics with more of a social conscience tonight's picks run the gamut of the kinds of stories of that era from the second banana of the DC pantheon running scourge from the comics code to the sentinel of the spaceways questioning what it means to be human a selection of stories this week that encapsulate an age first up DC the Batman of the 1950s was a radically different beast from the Batman of the 30s and 40s, and even more different from the Batman of the 70s to today. See, superheroes had almost disappeared from popular consciousness, with only Superman not only surviving, but thriving thanks to a successful TV show. The others, with the exception of Wonder Woman and Batman, had all but disappeared, and even Batman's popularity was floundering. In addition, the public's entertainment appetite had also moved on, and in were science fiction B-movies and creature features. 
The single worst enemy the Batman faced, though, was not the changing face of popular entertainment or the drive-in. It was far more insidious. A child psychologist named Frederick Wortham led the charge that comic books were almost single-handedly responsible for the post-World War II rise in juvenile delinquency, spurious charges that could easily have been refuted. But instead, DC ran scared, and instead of answering directly and hoping to avoid federal intervention, the comic book industry created its own self-censorship board the Comics Code Authority, in 1954. And so, to boost Batman's sales and to escape the watchful eyes of an oppressive big brother, comics looped outwards to the popular entertainment of the day to maintain sales and latched upon the science fiction and creature movies mentioned above. For Superman, this didn't really make much difference. A sci-fi angle had always been a part of that character's backstory, and really it just refocused his storylines from the more crime-orientated 40s and ended up introducing a number of successful additions to the Superman mythos. The Batman, however, was a different matter entirely. Originally conceived as a loner, a dark avenger of the night, the Batman had swiftly garnered a youthful sidekick to increase his appeal to kids, but largely still tackled gangsters and crime-motivated criminals. The 1950s, however, would see editors Whitney Ellsworth and Jack Schiff bestow upon the Batman an entire supporting cast ranging from Batwoman to Batmite, and place him in situations anathema to the original concept. Over the 50s, Batman would gain superpowers, travel to distant planets and fight aliens, robots and giants. Fans raised on the more recent Dark Knight era of Batman would probably be bemused to see the titles of this era of comics. Titles such as Prisoners of the Giant Robots, Batman's Robot Twin, The Creature from Planet X, Mystery of the Crystal Creatures and The Creature from 20,000 Fathoms. All adventures that sound like Batman would be far more at home co-starring with Will Robinson and Dr. Smith than Robin the Boy Wonder. Imagine if they did Batman vs. Cthulhu. Do you not just think Cthulhu would wipe the floor with him? Yeah, but depends which Batman. Godzilla vs. Cthulhu. Godzilla vs. Batman. (laughs) Batman would win. Probably he's Batman. I'm Batman. (laughs) I got a utility belt. And so it is with our Batman choices from the Silver Age, stories that reflect this era of comics, an era when Batman was not afraid to wear pink, be incredibly sexist to women, and engage in sitcom hijinks with Batmite, but a Batman just as valid for the era he was created in as the Batman of the 40s, the caped crusader of the 60s, and the Dark Knight of the 1980s. Because it's Batman and these stories are only ten pages, we have selected two tales to celebrate this era and two stories that play directly into Grant Morrison's recently concluded Everything Counts storyline. <laughs> I have to say I much prefer Everything Counts to Everything You Know Is Wrong or even lazier just saying oh, none of that stuff happened. And I freely admit I picked these purely to appeal to Michael's interest in that era of Batman while still hoping to choose something that represented this era fully and fairly. To that end, the first pick is Batman, the Superman of Planet X, originally published in Batman issue 113, cover dated February 1958. My copy is in the Batman in the 50s trade, but the original cover by Sheldon Moldoff features Batman swooping in from stage left as alien beings fire at him. The ray guns can't hurt me, thinks Batman mid-flight. On this planet, I'm Super Batman. Um... There's really nothing I can say about it other than the aliens on the cover don't really appear properly in the comic book itself. What do you think of that cover, Michael? 
It's pretty neat, except for all the pink and orange. Pink um, and orange, we're in! Apparently, ambush bug is shooting at them. <laughs> that is totally ambush bug, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. Again, like I so say, you don't actually see those in the in the, uh, in the the issue itself. Batman shorts are incredibly elongated on that cover. Yeah. I don't understand that. Maybe they just didn't want his tackle out <laughs> on the 1950s cover, which seems fair enough. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't really want to see that. No, I have no interest in bat tackle. You can keep it in his utility belt. Yeah. <laughs> Along with his something for the weekend. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the story was written by Franz Heron, who I'd never heard of. Had you? No. Never heard of that person. Uh, and with art by Dick Sprang and Charlie Paris. The Batman patrols the skies of Gotham late at night in the sleek bat plane when he becomes dizzy and almost passes out. Suddenly he hears a voice and finds that he has been transported to the distant planet of Zur-NR by Talano, the Batman of that planet. You see, Talano is a peeping Tom, and he spied Batman on our world and decided to emulate him on his world, complete with Batcave, Batmobile and Batplane. He also shows Batman the plot device that will enable him to bring an end to this adventure in but a few short pages, the Bat Radia, which issues electronic molecules that cause controlled disturbances in the atmosphere. With it, he can jam atmospheric molecules, rendering motor engines useless, a great boon in his line of work. Anyway, he hasn't ruined Batman's evening just to chat, and tells our hero that the entire planet of Zur-NR is under attack by an alien army with weapons far in advance of the Zur-NRians. For on this world, much like Superman on Earth, the Batman has superpowers. Batman, who is now faster than a speeding ray bullet, leaps into action, decimating the invaders' forces. But when the little green men reveal they have harnessed the power of invisibility, Batman is stumped. They return, now in giant exoskeletons, and tromp all over the cities of Zur-NR, and the Batman tries to fight, but these two turn invisible. Talano, however, has figured out that whenever the invisibility is used, his televiewer screen is also affected, and he deduces that they must have been using an electrical force to bend light, making them appear invisible. And he uses his bat radio to interfere with the source, allowing Batman to kick some alien ass. With the bad guys dispatched, never to return, yeah, right, Batman is sent home with the bat radio as a gift. Oh dear, where to begin with this story? I liked it. Uh, as with all comics of the period, this is simply signed Bob Kane, which was part of his contract with DC at the time. The splash page is a pretty decent piece of art in its own right. Batman flies right into the energy ray of the supersized alien robots. Sprang does a good job of capturing the size of the robots in relation to ZNR, which is typically 50s futuristic city. All domed hover cars and mid-air transparent walkways. Good splash, though. Mm-hmm. I do like that uh, he's got two claw hands, and one of them is crushing... A... It looks like Batman's bat plane. It looks like the bat boat. But Batman surely wouldn't have the bat boat here, would he? Especially if he can fly. What do you need a bat boat for? Well, he did have to get here or something. No, he just beamed Batman in. Right. The plane doesn't go with him. No, it doesn't. Yeah. No, he just brings Batman in. I like the so splash page. could the plane not have crashed? Well, I have a note about that later on. Fortunately, he puts him back in exactly the same place that he left him. Yes. Otherwise, the plane would have crashed into Gotham City, causing millions of dollars worth of damage. <laughs> wouldn't it? It would. Is that how we measure it now? Dollars, not lives. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> the important no, no. stuff. Yeah, 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 the important stuff. Absolutely. As expected from DC of this time, it's three whole panels 
before Batman is swooped away to Zurenar. It also appears he and Dick share a bedroom, which strikes me as rather odd in a house the size of Wayne Manor. Uh, but you know what Bruce does with his sleeping arrangements? Entirely up to him. I glossed over that. Did you? I did. Because you're not Frederick Wortham. Just, just accept it. Don't look into it anymore. The story's enjoyable. There's nothing to say that it's true. Maybe Dick just has two beds in his room. And maybe Bruce is just checking Yeah, and Bruce is just him. checking on him and making sure he's still asleep. Yeah. It's perfectly innocuous. It is. You have to be Frederick Wortham to see anything wrong, though. Uh-huh. We Moving just, on. Well, we're just going to dig on Frederick Wortham throughout this entire episode. Yeah. Filthy old man. <laughs> Ban this sick film. Ban this sick... F- down with this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Talano, who we meet on page two, the Batman of Zurenar, has a costume... Which is the best <laughs> design... Really? ...ever, ever, that ever graced comics, yes. It's a red tunic and leggings with purple gloves, boots, trunks, cowl and a cape with yellow sleeves. There is nothing wrong with that outfit. I can only assume Tilano's telescope that he used to view Batman through was in black and white. <laughs> or Tilano is colourblind. Well, yeah. <laughs> Take your pick. Just wait until Tony Daniel draws it. It'll look great. Okay, how does he watch Batman on Earth and go, ah, I will become him, except I will dress in red, purple and yellow. Well, how else are we going to know that they're two different Batman? <laughs> It's not like he can be fat. I do wonder if this is where the idea, they got the idea of putting the yellow oval around the bat, though. It could be. Because at the moment, Batman doesn't have that. That is something that will be added to when Julius Schwartz takes over in the later 50s, isn't it? Yeah. All right, because he has a yellow oval around his bat, which Batman doesn't have. Mm. That's quite interesting. I wonder if that's where they got the idea from. Could be. Yeah. But anyway, okay. there's nothing wrong with... Red, the, purple the, and yellow. Yeah. It in no way clashes... Darling. <laughs> if we're talking sartorial elegance. But no, there's nothing wrong with the Zurinar Absolutely Batman nothing costume. wrong with the Zurinar Batman costume. I like it. It's, I'll yeah. buy the action figure. You've got a Zurinar action figure, haven't you? No, I've not. Have you not? All right, I'm going to get you one for Christmas. Yeah. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Uh, page three, I do like the design of the Bat Radio, which you get a neat little close-up of yeah. on page three. It's not quite Kirby Tech. No. But it's a decent looking gadget, isn't it? It's a little bat tech. That's yeah. a busted a Walkman now. I do like that it's got a bat carved into it. Yeah, because that was <laughs> when you know it belongs to Batman. And, and specifically the Batman of Zurinar. Yes. You know, so... Mm. A little bit of yellow on there. Yeah, a little bit of yellow and purple wouldn't have got a miss, <laughs> would it? Just to cement in the reader's idea that this is the Batman of Zurinar's gadget. He doesn't need a Q branch. <laughs> he does it all himself. Pits some yellow and purple. <laughs> I, I want to know why Batman doesn't question any of this. <laughs> no, Batman just rolls I've with it, doesn't I've been watching he? you from afar. Oh, okay, cool, yeah. Yeah, this, Batman just go. do you watch me when I sleep, dude? Do you watch me when I'm in the shower? Because that's just a little bit creepy. And the Batman of Zurich is, no, no, I'm watching that Lana Lang woman while she's in the shower. Look, Batman, porn was banned a long time <laughs> <laughs> We've got to get our jollies off somehow. So I invented a rocket. I invented a telescope that can see across millions of miles of space, just so I can watch you sleep. And then Batman, back to play, boy. Batman slowly backing out of the Zuranar cave. Playing R. A little bit creeped out by this. <laughs> Suddenly it throws that first panel where Batman's just checking on Robin sleeping into light release, isn't it? <laughs> Perfectly innocuous panel when you discover that the Batman of Zurinar has been watching them all this time. 
dear Suddenly God. Suddenly War of the Worlds was a Serenaf story. <laughs> War of the Worlds was a documentary. <laughs> Um, I know questioning the logic of this story rather defeats the point. Yeah. But how did Talano know about this alien invasion before it happens? The bat radio. Or maybe, maybe... Um, I'm just looking for that. Does he actually state that the bat radio does that? I don't think he does. Maybe, maybe um, the... Over... T- they, they, they took over the TVs and said, People of Zoranar, we will invade you. We are coming! Yeah. Yeah, alright, okay, fair enough. Because I, I thought maybe this was just a preemptive strike, but alright. Would Tilano therefore have superpowers on our planet if Batman has superpowers on his planet? Or does it not work like that? I'm not sure, it doesn't say. Right. Would therefore, if they brought Superman, would he not have superpowers on Zoranar? Or would he be super duper stronger? Yeah, or would he be super duper man, yeah? Well, we don't know. We don't know, do we? Maybe if someone else is perving on Superman, we'll find out. Maybe Batman should say, oh, what's this place called Zurinair? If you go... Yeah. You'll be amazingly powerful. The only thing wrong, Superman, you've got to wear purple and yellow. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's too much for Superman. (laughs) Or either that, or he phones up uh, Muhammad Muhammad Ali. (laughs) Hey, you want that rematch? Yeah, sure, I'll fly over to this planet Zurinair. Yeah, all right, see you in (laughs) ten. And that way, when he's got superpowers, he kicks the crap out of it. Yeah. yeah. All right, fair enough. No aliens getting in the way this time. <laughs> uh, the scene on page five is actually pretty cool. I did like the first fight with the aliens. I thought it was great fun. Especially when he plays golf with the uh, the fiery orbs that the, uh, the aliens fire at him. I've got to admit, I thought it looked more like baseball than golf. Yeah. To be honest with you. But the dialogue says golf. So, so gotta roll the dialogue. We'll, we'll go with golf. Yeah, that's what he's doing. Golf. And it, it's it's not like the artist ever diverged from the script. No, all. no, not in it, not in no way. No, it, that's quite clearly baseball, isn't it? Yeah. All right, good. It wasn't just me then. I suppose as well asking how the aliens got the giant exoskeletons to Zurinar in the first place is again pointless because they're far too big to fit in those spaceships. Right, okay. Well, you know how the army have, like, special helicopters to carry in tanks and such? Yeah. They have them. So they carried them underneath them? Yeah. Invisible. So they weren't like Ikea and they just flat-packed them? All and then that. they assembled yeah, them yeah. when they got to Zurinar. <laughs> because you could have had this really funny panel, insert tab A, <laughs> into slot B, and they're trying to build their exoskeletons That's why they don't use them following up, Ikea instructions. <laughs> See, that's why they don't use them for the first strike. That's why he has to play... They've got something building them. <laughs> this story just got better. Yeah. I like how curious just little comic strip with no words on. Yeah. <laughs> They're trying to read and you could have a funny panel of an alien holding one upside down <laughs> and looking at it and going, wait a minute, that doesn't work. People on other planets also can't read Ikea manuals. <laughs> People on other planets also just toss away the Ikea instructions <laughs> and do what they want with it. Maybe Ikea is from this alien world. <laughs> alien world of ambush bugs. Invented Ikea. <laughs> Where am I? The robots are well designed. Once they actually get them out of the flat pack and uh, and build them. They're, they're kind of, they've got little spindly legs, but they've got big torsos. The aliens are up in the, the headpiece, which looks a bit like Robbie the Robot. And their arms are just pincers. But they're good robots. Mm. I do like the robots. And Batman kicking the crap out of them is funny. 
before they turn invisible and he just panics. They turn invisible and then he goes, wait, if it was stood in front of me, it would still be in front of me. (laughs) Yeah, he does that twice in this story. Something turns invisible and then he goes, oh, it's turned invisible, I can't do anything now. Unless Batman skipped over object permanence when he was (laughs) able Where's it gone? Oh, man. Batman, it's still... Uh, yeah, twice in the story he falls for that. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. World's greatest detective. Not quite. No. Perhaps. Well, he doesn't do a lot of detecting in this, doesn't he? Uh, if you didn't see that the Bat Radio was going to be the resolution to this story, you've not read enough comics. <laughs> Sets it up at page two, by page eight of the story. Ah, oh, the Bat Radio comes back into play. I did not see that one I coming. did not see that coming. Actually, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, after all this is over, Talano returns Batman to the exact same second because, as Michael mentioned, the Bat plane would have just crashed into a Gotham I skyscraper. Several, several million millions, dollars yes. worth of damage. <laughs> and like, then a six issue miniseries stating why superheroes are wrong. Yeah. Soon the Jeff Jury by Jeff John, <laughs> with art by Ivan Reese. Um, yeah, it's. You know, Batman does just go with this. Yeah. Doesn't he? He just, oh, I'm on another planet fighting that, a war. That okay. big grin on the last panel as he's holding the bat radio. Yeah, when he thinks, oh, was it all a dream? And then in his hand, bat radio. And he looks out the window and there's a, go- a golem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the wing of the bat plane. Yeah. And he's just like panicking. Alright, fair enough. Um, it was a fairly typical. It was great. Tale of the time, doesn't it? It seems incredibly outlandish nowadays. Well, it was written nowadays. It wasn't written, but no, but it works on its own merits. If it was written nowadays, it? it would be classed as Morrison filth. Yes, it would be classed as Morrison filth if it was written now. It's it's fairly representative when judged against other back comics of this time. Um, in many ways, it's critic proof, isn't it? Yeah. Really, it's churlish to be too hard on this story it reads like it was aimed at preteen kids which it was mm. and it works for that age group although I did think both the Flash and Green Lantern from this same era that we've covered over the past two weeks were of a much higher quality and seemed aimed at a slightly elder audience Yeah, do you think? but it works on its own merits I mean, we can sit here and rip the mick out of it as much as we want, but it was an entertaining little yarn Mm -hmm. in and of itself, wasn't it? It didn't make me want to hurl the book out the window or anything. (laughs) I mean, I I can't imagine people reading going, This isn't Batman! Superheroes are abomination! Yes. But, you know, I I don't want to criticise it, because it is easy to turn this to bits. Yeah. But it, it does what it sets out to do. Entertain. For the audience that it sets out to do it for. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not going to slag it off too much, I wouldn't have thought. It's still not being forgotten, it's still part no, of no, it's continuity. According to Grant Morrison, this is now part of continuity. I think it was forgotten quite a lot in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they've paired it, no, never mind. Uh, this is Batman, who has absolutely no hang-ups about his parents' death. He simply does what he does because it's fun, as evidenced <laughs> by the huge grin in the last panel of the story, as Michael mentioned. He has no problem at all with being beamed to a distant planet and fighting their wars for him. He even mentions how much fun it is to play at being Superman for a day. Yeah. Uh, this being the 50s, there's no background whatsoever on the aliens. We never even see them properly, nor on the Zuranarians, as Talano is the only one of them we meet. 
It's logical to assume that Talano took full credit for defeating the aliens and was hailed as a giant hero on Zurinar until a couple of years later when the aliens return and wipe out the entire planet. <laughs> Do you think the alternate title to the issue is I Am Curious, Purple, Yellow, and Red? <laughs> I Am Curious Interplanetary Batman. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, what did you think about it? I, I I really liked it. Did you really like it on its own merits, or did you like it because of what it has become? I was a little biased, but on its on its own, I thought it was a fun little read. Yeah, well, let's, we could sit here and rip this to pieces. Let's yeah. be brutally honest. In our superior, sardonic, cynical, postmodern way, we could sit here and tear this a new one. Mm-hmm. But that defeats the point of what we're trying to do. But then you still got the thing where we we believe that suit of Batman is more unbelievable than Superman, so just roll with it. It's it's good. All right, okay. Yeah, it does what it sets out to do. It's, I'm not going to claim it's high art or great literature, <laughs> but comics don't have to be high art or great literature to be entertaining. Mm. In fact, nothing has to be high art or great in its own medium to be entertaining. And I didn't see Shakespeare sending Horatio to Zerina. No, I did not see that either. <laughs> and if he'd done that, maybe I'd go to the theatre more. <laughs> Hamlet on Zerina. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually be quite good. It would, wouldn't it? Yeah. And you could have um, Lex Luthor and Brainiac yeah. and the Joker all team up to be When Shall We Three Meet Again? <laughs> Tolano and Juliet. <laughs> I do like that. <laughs> hey, Zurinarian literature. I was peeping on you through my, my intergalactic <laughs> telescope. Which is considered foreplay <laughs> on Zurinar. <laughs> These shower devices you use on Earth. <laughs> Would you like to try one? <laughs> Probably work for him as well. Um, this episode was adapted quite successfully into an episode of The Brave and the Bold, featuring some rather neat stunt casting. Kevin Conroy, Batman in the 90s animated series, was rehired as the Batman of Zurinar, whilst acknowledging that this is really a Superman story. Dana Delaney and Clancy Brown, Lois and Lex of the 90s animated series, were brought back as that world's equivalent of Lois and Lex. Did you ever see that one? Probably. It was alright. I, I, don't, I don't remember thinking it was great, but, you know. Secondly, on the Silver Age Bat Train, the interplanetary Batman from Batman 128, covered, dated, sorry, December 1959. The cover by Sheldon Moldoff has a pink alien with huge eyes and large finned pointed ears stalking away from Batman and Robin who are in jail claiming, let us out! We're innocent, I tell you. Jail is full of innocent men. Is it not? The alien jailer has a lovely natty yellow t-shirt on with a green cross across the chest and a star in it and a black band around the torso. Myself, I was quite fond of his green speedos and yellow boots. <laughs> what do you think of that cover? He looks really scared and... He looks just really scared. He looks a little bit horrified that Batman and Robin are saying that they're innocent and in jail. Yeah. My, my imag- in my imagination, the next panel was him going, Oh, okay, and letting him out. <laughs> Because no one's ever thought to just say, oh, we're innocent, I tell you! Either that or he's glad he's not going to be Batman's uh, prison mate's yeah. <laughs> No, that was that was what Robin was for <laughs> later on. I think. No, they were, they were perfectly innocent. They slept in separate beds. Yeah, back on Earth. <laughs> I'm not going to testify that Robin came out of this sphincter intact. <laughs> anyway, this story was... Oh! 
This story was written by Bill Finger with art by Sheldon Moldoff. Batman and Robin pull over in the Batmobile to help an alien be named Croc. <laughs> Suddenly, the alien is apprehended by a flock of aliens named Ergons because he's a criminal type, and Batman and Robin are guilty by association. Clearly, the subtext of this story is don't pull over to help anyone with a flat tyre. Before you can say mock calling Orson, Batman, Robin and Croc find themselves on a prison moon and Robin protests his innocence. Croc laughs at Robin and backhands him so Batman punches him out a bit. The guards arrive and Batman's utter faith in the judicial system is crushed when they don't believe he and Robin don't have anything to do with it or no Croc from Adam. Batman has had enough and breaks free using his utility belt, but he allows Croc to join them as he may be a useful guide. They escape and swim for the Forest of Peril, a forbidden land that no one has ever survived. The trio manage to avoid danger from tracking robots, swamp amoebas and ram beasts. Well, they were in jail and steal an unguarded space cruiser and blast off. To no one's surprise, Croc betrays Batman and Robin, but Batman has turned the tables on Croc, and they were allowed to escape by the Ergons after Batman promised them Croc's loot. With Croc back in jail, Batman hopes he and the Ergons will work together one day. We can only hope. <laughs> uh, the splash page is again independent from the story, giving the reader a taste of what's to come. It's actually better than the cover of the actual comic, with Robin being grabbed by the snooper robots that they encounter in the Forbidden Zone, Batman running in to help, and Croc, resplendent in scaly green underpants, gloves and boots that in no way clash with his orange suntan, <laughs> whines about how they are doomed. Croc is not a very good alien. He's really It not. has to be said. He's very fat, for a start. Yeah. Um... I'm not quite sure what's going on. Are his boots webbed, scaly feet, or are they his feet? Well, if they're his feet, then that means he's not wearing any pants and he's just a G.I. Joe. If he's not wearing any pants, I'm not looking at that page any longer. <laughs> I do not wish to see Croc cock. <laughs> cock. <laughs> Again, brevity is the watchword, so within four panels, Batman and Robin are in jail on a distant world. The, the, the cracks on it in the first panel as well. They didn't waste... What is it with Gotham? You can't go at night without being abducted by aliens. By aliens. <laughs> Cartman gets an anal probe. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's... But it's just Batman and Robin pull over. Hey, there's an alien over there. Let's go see what he needs. I love, I love the dialogue. That great Scott. Robin, look at that man. He must be... An alien from another planet! Because that's the first thing you think. Well, look at him. What, what would you think he was, if not an alien from another planet? Um, a sufferer of a, some kind of disease. <laughs> not a Halloween. Or, or, or a um, rather not very pleasant lady who put a bit too much fake... Uh, Suntan on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does look a little bit like Joey Essex, doesn't he? <laughs> Far too much fake tan. Um, well, he's good with the numbers. Yeah, he's, he's exceptionally good with numbers, yeah. I'm not even going to bother mentioning stuff like how fast they need to be travelling on Earth-like planets. Because, let's be honest, the target audience didn't give a toss, so I don't see why <laughs> I should. It was nice to see that Batman didn't trust Croc, and it was nice to see that he's an asshole. <laughs> so assholes are universal. The train of thought going through Batman's head was, this guy is an alien, he must be an asshole. <laughs> I don't like him. He's different to me. <laughs> no, not only that, I think Batman's actually quite tolerant. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, but... Uh, until he hits Robin. Until he smacks Robin about <laughs> Why has that panel not become a meme? 
Well, it's the one where Batman slaps him. Yeah, well, that, that's just as funny. <laughs> where Crouch slaps Robin across the face. That's funny on its own. Yeah. Out of my way, insect smack. <laughs> and I love Robin's stunned. What? <laughs> Batman, he just hit me. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Excellent panel. Absolutely love it. Poor Robin. I feel a bit sorry for I'll have that framed on my wall. <laughs> it needs making into a meme. <laughs> uh, I did like The Forest of Peril. Which I thought was wonderfully designed and very colourful. And this is. Someone have a Dr. Seuss book? Yeah, it's the most exciting bit of the book. Mm. Uh, The story, it's not a book, it's only 10 pages. I I don't know how robots can track a scent, but as you said in the last story, let's just go with it (laughs) at this point. Unless they're trained, programmed to smell. How does that work then, Ted? Maybe, maybe uh, they were once dogs, but they died or were killed. They're now bionic. Yes. Right. All right. For, yeah, it's just it's as plausible as anything else in this story, isn't it? All right. Well, I like the uh, broccoli bull on the next page. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the broccoli ram beast. <laughs> I wonder if the celery man from Avengers Four came, came from, from this, this planet. planet. Yeah. That would be quite funny. I love how Batman plays with the ram beast like um, a matador, <laughs> playing with a bull. <laughs> He's just using his cape. <laughs> it's, it's very funny. It's a good sequence, a fun sequence. I liked it. Page seven, I loved the using of the items from the Forest of Peril in the conclusion of the story, which shows that Batman was paying attention when Crark mentioned all the poisonous plants, mm. poisonous in that they carried pepper. <laughs> and this would be their undoing. You ever got pepper in your eye? <laughs> uh, pretty much the same as the last Batman story in many ways this is again not without its charm but it really does sum up the general impression of the Silver Age of comics Batman is characterised well in that he uses his brains to get out of problems and there's a couple of set him up knock him down moments that are not as telegraphed as the bat radio in the earlier issue to be fair it does work within its own little environment and it seems to be fairly representative of this era of Batman as a whole, at least until Julius Schwartz came along and tried to remake Batman into a fairly realistic detective strip. There's plenty here for the kiddies and there's a huge level of imagination on display, but this is very much kid stuff. But that's not a condemnation. The difference between the Flash and the Green Lantern stories that we've covered previously and these are... much like the difference between Lost in Space and Doctor Who. Both are science fiction series aimed at kids. Both are entertaining in their own way, but one is written for an older and family audience, whereas one is aimed strictly at children. What Schwartz was doing with The Flash seems to be a cut above this, and it's easy to see why he was asked to work his magic on Batman when sales started flagging. It's humorous to look back now and see that, like with flowed trousers in the 70s, this version of Batman disappeared almost overnight. With Schwartz's arrival, Batmite, Batwoman, alien invasions and trips in time departed, and there was a larger emphasis on detective stories and a more grounded-in-reality Batman. As he had with The Flash, Carman Infantino gave a more modern look to the strip, although he didn't completely redesign the character as he did with the earlier revamp. However, shortly after Schwartz's revamp of Batman, the real world around comics changed, and Stan Lee's Marvel comics, with their more grown-up approach to storytelling, would cause Batman to have to reinvent himself yet again. What did you think of the second one, Michael? Uh, It wasn't as good, but... I, I enjoyed it anyway. I thought the second one was funnier. Yeah. Because it was plainly ridiculous. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whereas the first one tried to operate within the bounds of credibility. Batman was operating in Gotham City, normal night, whisked <laughs> to another planet. Yeah. If you prefer to think of it as a dream, fur do's, even though he has the bat radio in his hand. Yeah. 
But the second one was quite clearly preposterous. Oh, yeah. Wasn't it? I like seeing Batman out of his element, though. Although, from what I've, I've, I've learned today... It, it he was never in his element, element was he? <laughs> yeah. I think the most telling thing about this era of Batman, though, is the lack of people that want it back. You know, every comic book character has a, a small, largely loud and vocal minority of fans who always want to return to that era. Normally it coincides with them starting to read comics. For example, if your Batman, like mine, is the Denny and Neil Adams version, that's the default setting for you and the one you don't mind seeing return. Although, to be fair, Scott Snyder's version isn't that far away from that, mm. to be honest, which may be why I'm enjoying it. Even the most vociferous fans of this era of Batman seem to think that it's an incarnation of the character best left in the past. There's very few people clamouring for a return of Crark and what? the Zurenar stuff, <laughs> other than Grant Morrison. I think it works really well, because whatever you have against Morrison and his run on Batman, he took elements from those and made them work in a modern-day version of Batman. Yeah, and that is a much better approach than just ignoring it or saying it never happened. Yeah, and it's much better way than just mocking it. Yeah, which he didn't. He didn't mock any of this stuff. No, no. He acknowledged that it happened and did something different with it. Mm. So, you know, fair play to him. Everything old is new again Mm -hmm. until the new 52 comes around. Yes. And none of it matters. Even though it still does. Even though it still does. Yes. Does it matter to you? No. As a reader? No. No, so that story doesn't matter. Or kind of. Does the Grant oh, Morrison oh, right, you, yeah. you were, right, that's what you were asking me. I thought you were asking me about does the new 52 matter. No, no, no. Does the Grant Morrison story still matter to you? Yeah. As a Greek gestalt? Yes. Well, that's all that matters then. Yeah, fair enough. It's still there for you to enjoy. Yeah. Dan Diddy hasn't come round and burned all your comics <laughs> down. I yes. Bet, I bet he would. He's like Santa. <laughs> the anti-Santa. <laughs> Santa. <laughs> Uh, the Marvel pick for this week is one of the quintessential Marvel characters of the 1960s. The Sentinel of the Spaceways, the Silver Surfer. I love the Surfer. I've always loved the Surfer. He's almost the perfect marriage of the slightly ridiculous, yet oh-so-serious thing that comics can do almost better than any other medium. He's a silver Oscar award that travels around space on a surfboard. It's genius! Was coming out with poetry. Yes, by speaking bloody awful poetry. That doesn't rhyme. No. No. It's not vogue on poetry levels of badness, though, is it? No, no, no. Let's be honest. Stanley levels of Stanley badness. Stanley levels of badness. <laughs> it's a completely different level of badness. First appearing in Fantastic Four issue 48, the Silver Surfer was a herald of world devourer Galactus, scouring space for planets for his boss to scoff. But when he brought Galactus to Earth, the humanity of the blind sculptress Alicia Masters showed him the depth of humanity's soul, and he turned against his employer and fought on behalf of humanity. His reward was the removal of his ability to soar out of space, and the surfer was trapped on Earth. The Silver Surfer is one of those characters that is a happy accident, and a product of the Marvel method. By 1966, Stanley was far too busy to plot and script all of Marvel's output, so he, by and large, left the plotting to his artists. When you had excellent visual thinkers like Steve Ditko or Jack Kirby, this could often lead to gold. Or silver, in this case. And such was the case when Jack Kirby returned the art for FF issue 48, complete with a character that Stan didn't recall from the plotting sessions. Who's that? asks Lee. It's Galactus's Herald. A guy like Galactus doesn't have time to do all this stuff for himself, so he has his Herald do it for him. He's riding a surfboard, said Lee. In space. 
I feel the fool. So, replied Kirby, as if this were the most normal thing in the world. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but Lee, after scoffing up the concept, initially became enamoured with the surfer while scripting the issue, using the surfer's cod philosophising as a way to comment on the human condition, much as Star Trek would go on to do. In 1968, the surfer was given his own comic, boasting 40 pages of stories, and the first issue, covered dated August 1968, would fill in the surfer's backstory. Originally, the surfer was Norin Rad, a restless inhabitant of the utopian planet Zen-Lar. When his race was threatened by the world-consuming Galactus, Norin Rad saved the day by offering to aid the menace in his endless quest for the worlds to devour, in return for Zen-Lar and Norin's beloved Shalabal being spurred. The surfer's backstory actually fits in quite well with FF issue 48, contradicting it only slightly in that the surfer originally only looks for uninhabited planets in Silver Surfer number 1, whereas in FF issue 48 the surfer didn't seem to give a rat's ass about Earth or its inhabitants. We mentioned last time that one of the characteristics that separated the burgeoning Marvel characters from their DC counterparts was a self-awareness and heavy dollop of angst, and the Silver Surfer had angst to spur. More so even than Peter Parker, the Hulk or the Thing, the Surfer may be the quintessential Stan Lee Marvel character. Do you have any opinion on the Silver Surfer at all? Not really. Excellent. He's like the Bill. The Bill? Yeah. He's the... You just never watch it? Yeah. Excellent. Good. All right. Fair enough. Yeah, I remember him being in Marvel Zombies, where he was just that guy watching over it until they all had the great idea of if they ate him, they'd have the power cosmic. And did, yeah, they did, didn't they? About five of them did, yeah. And then they killed everyone else, cooked them and eat them, and then decided that zombie meat isn't all that great. <laughs> Excellent, good. And then they killed Galactus and, eat, and ate him, and then they became five mini Galactuses and went around eating other planets. Was that all in the first one? Yeah. The Robert Kirkman one? Yeah. Right, okay. I actually really want to go read Marvel Zombies now. We should cover Marvel Zombies. We should. It's only five issues, isn't it? The first one was, yeah. We can cover that in the show, I suppose. Silver Server issue 5 boasts an April 1969 cover date and features an absolutely wonderful cover by John Buscema of the Surfer engaging in battle with a giant being on the streets of New York. The being has a marvellous bequiffed hurdo and a great Jason Wingard moustache. Stan seems to be foregoing the hyperbole as there is no cover copy except the title of the story which is And Who Shall Mourn For Him? It was written by Stan Lee, with art by John and Sal Buscema. Letters were by Art Simak. Did you like the cover of the Pawn Star fighting the Silver Surfer? It, it was fine. The Pawn Star fighting the naked dude. Yes. That is a pawn film. It, it is. Isn't it? I, 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 only just, I only just got the title. <laughs> now that I've read it, yes. all, and, and I've, now another title. Excellent. That's, that's clever. Keep up. Yes. I'm doing good, mate. You are, you're doing excellent. I'm, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> the Silver Surfer steals a deadly space scrambler weapon from the Baxter building and escapes with the FF even knowing who stole it. Apparently it can penetrate the barriers between dimensions, and the Surfer believes it will destroy the barrier that keeps him trapped on Earth. Alas, it backfires in his hands, and the Surfer awakens in the apartment of Al B. Harper, a geologist who saw the Surfer fall to Earth. After hearing the Surfer's tale of woe, is there any other kind of Silver Surfer story, Harper agrees to help, but to do that they'll need money. The Surfer tries to get a job, which is as hilarious as it sounds, but constant rejections cause him to consider stealing. But before he can go through with it, he comes to his senses. Outside, he comes across a man named Tiny, beaten and bloody, who tells him of an illegal gambling den where the dice are loaded. 
After learning the rudiments of this game called Blackjack, the surfer cleans out the gambling den, even teaching the sharks in in there a thing or two when they try to kill him. He splits the money with Tiny and then takes off into the night. A few days later, Albie Harper has used the money to buy the equipment needed, and at his lab uptown, he creates a device that will shield the surfer's molecular structure from the barrier. Strapping the device to himself as he alone is a big enough power source to fuel it, the surfer fires repeated blasts into space as he approaches the barrier to confuse the atomic field. He also confuses pretentious porn-stash-egomanic the Stranger, here to deposit a null-life bomb upon Earth to eliminate all mankind. Despite being feared on Zen La, the surfer tries to prevent the Stranger from unleashing his deadly weapon, but the Stranger vanishes, and the surfer, all thoughts of his own matters now gone, swoops back down to Earth to warn them. Al Harper, after hearing the surfer's tale, rushes to the police, but rather predictably they don't believe him. Thus do the surfer and Harper try to track down the bomb themselves with a portable Geigerscope Harper invented. They close in, but the surfer senses a disturbance in the force and leaves Harper to find the bomb whilst he tackles the stranger. Again, the stranger offers the surfer the freedom to leave, and again the surfer chooses to stay and protect the people who fear him. They fight again, and the surfer learns the bomb has a trigger mechanism on it that will cause the death of anyone who tampers with it. Presumably, being a bomb, it causes the death of people that don't tamper with it as well. Al B. Harper, meanwhile, has his own problems, such as avoiding people that think, not unreasonably, that the detect bomb device to strap to his chest is, in fact, a bomb. Oh, Stan loves his irony. Al eludes his pursuers and finds the bomb, but, as foretold when he tampers with it, a smoky acid is loosed, burning Al's clothes, then flesh, eyes and lungs. But Al refuses to give up, trying his hardest to deactivate the bomb as the acid burns through his flesh to eat his organs. But succeed Al B. Harper does, saving the entire world, though none will ever know. Except one. Well, two if you count the stranger, who, annoyed that one man sacrificed himself for the many, leaves, largely I suspect, because it's near the end of the issue. The surfer returns to Earth and later finds that Albie Harper has been buried without ceremony in an unmarked grave. This is not enough for the surfer, who lights an eternal flame that will forever burn in the memory of Albie Harper. The hero nobody knew. And who shall mourn for him? Yeah, you like that? Yeah. See him? Could be him, the stranger, or is it Albie Harper? Clever. I like that. I like that a lot. The Silver Surfer's own comic was actually bi-monthly, and Stan made the decision to make it double-length with 40-page stories and a Watcher backup strip. This decision must have been made quite late in the day, as this is actually only the second actual 40-page story. The first three issues of this series were two 20-page stories stitched together. Fair enough. They've even got splash pages and... Right. Titles and everything. And you're like, well, I wonder why they decided to do that. Fair enough. Fair enough. This issue of The Silver Surfer was on the stands at the same time as issue 85 of The Fantastic Four. So was this the first time John Buscema drew the FF? I mean, he doesn't get to draw Sue. Mm. He only gets to draw, draw Reed, Ben and uh, Johnny. Or was Sue pregnant at this point? Don't know. I don't remember. They're leaving in it anyway. Yeah, they're in the first two pages and that's it. I just like how the, the, the plot exposition... It's like, oh, he's going into the lab. Isn't that where you know Doohickey is? Yes, and if anyone steals it, it could be very bad for all of us. <laughs> oh no, he stole the Doohickey. It's just as I feared. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> if the scrambler is fired, Johnny, anything can happen. Get after him. <laughs> and Johnny goes, okay, flame on. <laughs> and it doesn't end well. No. Johnny fails miserably. The FF never <laughs> even discover who this was. Johnny fails miserably by not doing anything. <laughs> 
Uh, he leaps heroically over a sofa. And then... <laughs> yeah. Doesn't he? <laughs> that's, that's all he did. Yeah. How many times is Johnny going to try and fly out into space before he realises that flame doesn't burn without oxygen? Well, it's like that, that test of the electricity and the cake. <laughs> <laughs> How many times do you have to do the same thing before you realise that maybe it's not going to work? Well, he's Johnny Storm. He's not all that bright. He's, he's not terribly bright. Um, I did wonder why Reed and, and Ben were showering and shaving in the same bathroom. Does the Baxter building only have one? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. One bathroom in the entire Baxter building. Yeah. Or maybe the thing like showering with Reed. They're very close mates. Yeah, he's like, don't leave me. I don't like being on my own. <laughs> well, at least put the shower curtain over. I don't want to see you rock. Yeah, I wonder what uh, what Sue has to say about this. Maybe that's why she's not around. Yeah, it's either him or me. Yeah, it's all right. See you soon. <laughs> Apparently, Reed has invented a device that can penetrate dimensions, and it's been written up in all the best magazines. Yeah. Wouldn't you love to live in a world where a scientific noodlings of Reed Richards are front page news? Yeah. Rather than vacuous celebrity stuff. I'm still pissed off I know what twerking is. I don't want to know what it is. In the next issue of Heat, Reed Richards discusses... <laughs> yeah, in the next issue of Nuts magazine, page after page of Reed and his new inventions, yeah. and then a couple of pages of Lucy Pindu and her top on. <laughs> Now that you know, that's probably a magazine most men would buy. Oh yeah, to be honest with you. Um, what did Reed Richards have to say about the PS4? <laughs> <laughs> a technological advance. <laughs> and here's Happy Clancy in her underwear <laughs> on a PS4. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, whilst reading this, I did wonder why the surfer didn't just ask if he could borrow it. <laughs> show up and say, you know that space scrambler thing, I actually think it may be able to help me get through the barrier Galactus put around the Earth, which you know about because you were there. Can I borrow it for a minute? And I'm sure Reed would have said, okay. Well, uh, put a good review in for the new magazines. Yeah, or Reed may have gone, if I don't lend it to him, should he turn against Earth, (laughs) he would be evil. The Marvel train of thought. The Marvel train of thought. Well, no, Reed Richards' train of thought. Stan did have the same thought, to be fair, and on page four he does address that the Silver Surfer didn't want to ask because he he didn't want to risk a refusal because then he would have had to steal it anywhere. Yeah. Seems to me better to ask and be surprised that they say yes than just steal something (laughs) that could potentially tear asunder the fabric of reality. Yes. Well, well, you know, the silver surface free, what else matters? Well, if it does tear apart the, the dimensions of reality, then no one will know. Yeah, no one will care, we'll all be dead. <laughs> Cheers, surfer. <laughs> uh, also, it's readily apparent that despite it being written up in Nuts magazine, right next to pictures of a naked Lucy Pinder, Reed's device doesn't work. Yes. The silver surfer uses it and it blows up. <laughs> That was hysterical. Reed Richards' magnificent device that he'd received all these scientific plaudits for and the Nobel Peace Prize, plus a brand new Lucy Pinder spread where she's holding the gun in Nuts magazine, doesn't work! No. (laughs) And Lucy Pinder's the only name that comes to mind when I think of Nuts magazine. I'm sure they have all the top I I know, it's isn't it? There is another one. I can't remember her name. Keely something. Well, can you not just go with... Deb, 32, Essex. <laughs> no, 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 they're page three. <laughs> right. Because they're the ones that always say, as Shakespeare once said. <laughs> <laughs> they're hysterical, aren't they? The current socio- social political climate reminded me <laughs> of, of Shakespeare. Did it really? <laughs> Tara, 19, <laughs> Birmingham. 
anyway, back to the Silver Surfer comic. Al B. Harper is a physicist and geologist. I presume the geologist thing is just a hobby. And he is employed. As with everybody in the Marvel Universe, he has a rudimentary knowledge of science and can therefore build remarkable gadgets in mere seconds. Yeah, he, he can build a little gravity gun. In, in seconds? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's the dimensional thing that Reed made. So yeah. isn't he working with Reed Richards then? Why does nobody know who that he is? That was my thought. That if this guy is this bright, why is he not working at Stark International? If he's made the same thing Reed has in that quicker period of time. Yeah, and his almost works. Yeah. His doesn't backfire. <laughs> like Blue Reed Richards does. Yeah. I'm beginning to think Reed isn't the brains that he's made out to be. The moral of this story is don't go to Apple, go to those <laughs> cheap <laughs> brands. Yeah, go to some other dude. <laughs> I do like page seven, Al B. Harper's introduction to the Silver Surfer, after we get an extended sequence where he finds him just falling from the sky, mm. like the man who fell to earth kind of thing. Uh, Al, he says, maybe I know what it's like to be pushed around, which says an awful lot about the character in very few words, filling in oodles of backstory with just one line of dialogue, which I thought was pretty damn impressive. Very, very good. Mm. I like the line, hey, here's a little beauty. Why did you like that? He's on about the rock. Oh, right, when he's just looking. He's a geologist, rocks rocks exciting. I guess, but it's a boring comic book grey rock. (laughs) It's slate. He's looking at slate. So, (laughs) maybe that's what Al B. Harper likes doing. Who are we to judge this man? (laughs) Looking at rocks. There are some really nice looking rocks. I've got a rock. That is. (laughs) That is just slate. Alright, fair enough. Hey, yeah, it is a right. fix my roof for you. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not like it is a colourful rock. It's not like it's got like lots of you hold it up to the sun and lots of different colours shine from it and stuff. It is just a piece of grey music plays yeah. the rainbow Dark side down. of the moon comes out money No, that doesn't happen. Gonna go steal it. <laughs> that doesn't happen at all. No. He he goes home and as you say, he slets his roof <laughs> with his with what he's just found. Albie goes to his science tonight. <laughs> Very excited by his find. <laughs> Which seems fair enough. Uh, the next few pages, though, were hysterically funny. Where the Silver Surfer goes out to get a job. He disguises himself in a long trench coat, trilby and sunglasses. And I love that no one fell for it. Yeah. All of them recognise him. Or at the very least go, you've got a weird skin condition, dude. Oh, I wanted one guy to go up to him and say, hey, aren't you Ben Grimm? <laughs> <laughs> ben Grimm's trench coat. <laughs> uh, the scene where he tries to get a job is, all, <laughs> is incredibly funny. And the Silver Surfer realises that being an illegal alien isn't all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> so when he tries to rob a bank... I do like that he changed his mind. Yeah. And he realised, no, this is wrong, I'm not going to do this. Without actually being caught or something like that. Although he does get stopped by a security guard who he just makes forget that he was Jedi ever there. Yeah, he Jedi mind wipes it. Uh, you don't need to sell me death sticks. You need to go home and rethink your life. You don't need to arrest me. Go back to your empty, hollow life. <laughs> eat, eat your cerebral sandwiches that your wife has made for you. They are laced with arsenic. <laughs> Forget that you caught her speaking to another man. <laughs> Do not worry about those mysterious texts on her phone. <laughs> We're just giving this guy a backstory now. <laughs> More of a backstory than he gets in the comic. I think it's fair to say. Uh, the surface stands up for the common man on pages 12 through 17 with Tiny, who is a gambler, yes, 
but a gambler who's trying just to support his family tugs at the surfer's heartstrings and uh, he gets involved in a card game. The Silver Surfer being involved playing Jack Jack. Jack Jack? Black Jack is in and of itself pretty hysterical. Mm. So I thought that was quite funny. But I do love that the Silver Surfer goes and cheats. Yeah. But given that Tiny has established that the dice are loaded, mm. then, you know, it's kind of justified. He's cheating that cheating. Yes, basically. Mm. And he's using the money for a greater good. Yeah. But I thought that was quite fun, because he is very Jedi, isn't he? Mm. He's using his power cosmic like the Jedi to turn the dice over in, the, in his favour. So yeah. I thought that was quite funny. I didn't understand on page 15 why the surfer let himself get beaten up. He uh, does try and justify it by saying, I did not resist in order to learn the extent of the savagery. But you're like, but you know the extent of man's inhumanity to man. When's he going to stop? Like, when they, when they start pulling out the guns? Yeah. So At what a... point would he just say, right, I've had enough now? Putting the cement shoes on him. <laughs> I, I let them put the cement <laughs> shoes on me as, just to learn how evil they are. I let the piranhas pick up my skin. <laughs> I let the piranhas eat all my flesh off just, just to, to see how evil they are. evil fish are. <laughs> I let the shark bite my arm off to learn the extent of the hunger. I let myself die. (laughs) (laughs) No, that that didn't make any sense to me at all, to be honest with you. Although I did like when um, the thugs try to run the surfer over, Tiny risks his life for the surfer, which shows that unlike the rest of this story, people are pretty decent. And I did like that the surfer turns the car that tries to run him and Tiny over into a small dice. Mm. Just looking at the art, it's even funnier when you realise the surfer just crushed those people. <laughs> at no point anywhere do we see them jump out. No. But there is a line of dialogue where Stan says they should live. I did cushion the fall. Off panel. Off panel. And you're like, <laughs> Norin. We've only got your word for that, dude. <laughs> I suspect you just crushed the life out of them and yeah, then went... this Jedi mind trick on that guy. Oh, yeah, I'm tiny. <laughs> yeah. And that's what he's... They lived. I cushioned the fall. <laughs> and tiny's... Of course, should ask. <laughs> tiny's... They lived. Silver Surfer cushioned the fall. Here's some bribery money. Thank you very much for the bribery money. <laughs> off he goes. None the wiser. As to what happened. I did like that the surfer split the money with Tiny, though. Mm. I thought that was quite a nice touch. That he's, he's an honourable man, even though he's just crushed four people <laughs> in a car to death. <laughs> Page 18, Harper thinking that the surfer came by the money too easily, so it must be stolen, was also a nice touch, showing Harper was an honest man. But one is left wondering what he needed the money for. We're told in the story that to make whatever the Silver Surfer wants will require a lot of money, right? Yeah. So the Surfer goes out to get a job or whatever and ends up in this blackjack game getting all this money, okay? Yeah. Fine, no problem. But then when Al goes to do whatever he needs to do, he just goes to the lab, where apparently he has all the stuff that he needs. What did he need the money for? Caffeine and tobacco. Just a, a constant supply of cigarettes, <laughs> black coffee. That's what he needed the money for. Yeah. Because he works at the... Because he does say the end, minutes turn to hours, the hours turn to days, the implication being he's worked on this almost constantly. So, okay. He needed all that money just to keep himself fueled in coffee. <laughs> yes. All right, I'll go with that. That seems fair enough. Harper's lateral thinking here was actually quite cool. He can't break the barrier, but what he can do is try and convince the barrier that the Silver Surfer isn't there. 
mm. and therefore that will enable him to go through it. I thought that was quite clever of him. Yep. Certainly cleverer than Reed Richards, <laughs> whose dangerous scrambler device just leaves lying on the kitchen table where anyone can nick it, and then it backfires when you use it. Yeah. Unless he did it deliberately and that was a fail-safe. Right. And you've got to key in a, the right combination before you can use the space scrambler. It, it, or, space scrambler, right. it was in the kitchen, on the table, it was having eggs. eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't a big device at all. <laughs> he was just trying to make Sue's life making his tea easier. I made you a new device for making my tea, woman! This massive gun thing <laughs> that smashes the ball and gets the eggs everywhere. <laughs> and Sue walks in and goes, you never heard of an egg whisk. <laughs> Manual labour for... Manual labour is for lesser men. All women. <laughs> Manual labour is for women. That's Reed Richards' philosopher. <laughs> Boy, is he a sexist. <laughs> The Stranger shows up on page 20. Did you understand The Stranger's motivations? No. You get from the story, right, Earth so small, so weak, and yet more dangerous than a thousand plagues. And you get from the story he's out to teach us a lesson yeah. for our warlike ways, which is rather, you know, presumptuous of him. <laughs> but okay, we'll let it slide. But... How does he hope to teach humanity the folly of its warlike ways? By blowing, by blowing us all up. Yeah. How did that in any way make any sense? The Zurinar stuff makes more sense than this story. Yeah. Even though this is pound for pound a better comic, the Zurinar story, internally logic-wise, holds up better. Maybe, maybe he just wanted to blow us up anyway. Maybe that was just his spurious motivation. I just want to blow him up anyway. I don't give a rat's ass. <laughs> yeah. Right. I like I like Silver Surfer's uh, get-up he starts wearing when he has the, the new device. Oh, yeah, it is He, he does cool, look huh? like a Jim Lee-designed 90s Toy Biz action figure. Page 24. The stranger says the surfer can go as his quarrel is not with him. This did beg the question, if Earth blows up, does the barrier remain in place? Yes. So the surfer's just left wandering around where Earth used to be. Yeah. Which would be even worse for him than being stuck on Earth, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, all right, fair enough. I can understand why he, he wants to, to fight the stranger. On page 26, after being told by the surfer of the danger, why does Harper go to the police instead of, oh, I don't know, the FF? Um... Oh, well, maybe that's why he doesn't get the recognition that Reed Richards does. Because they were once uh, uh, science partners until Reed stole his plans and got all the fame and glory for it. So now Al hates him. Because that's what he meant by he's, he's used to being pushed around. Reed, Reed Richards pushed by him Reed around. By Reed Richards. Yeah. So essentially you've got a Breaking Bad thing going on here. Maybe. If Walt had stayed with that company, he'd have been rich. Mm-hmm. If B. Harper had stayed with Reed... He'd have been rich. Yeah. All right. I can go with that. That seems perfectly plausible to me. Al Harper gets on the surfboard on page 27 and then falls off as the surfer takes off. Mm. You'd think a scientist would know about stuff like that, wouldn't you? (laughs) Gravity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or even just the act of if you stand on something and then that something pulls away quickly, you're going to fall backwards. Al exceptionally good at building gadgets not very good at stuff like that <laughs> physics is for lesser beings <laughs> uh, the rest of the story proceeds quite nicely till we get to page 35 the surfer's battle with the stranger is okay again the battles in the Zurinar stuff were actually more interesting and fun mm. than the battles in this even though pound for pound like I said this was actually a better comic uh, 
in these enlightened 21st century times, however, Albie Harper has a strange device strapped to him that looks like a bomb, <laughs> and he's stopped. That didn't seem unreasonable nowadays. No. Now, it could be that back here, it's like, well, you're not a radio, you got trapped to your chest, dude. And it seems like it was written... He's got a little ghetto blaster. Yeah, he's got a little baby ghetto blaster. It was written as if they were victimising him. Yeah. Nowadays, if you see somebody walking down the street with something strapped to their chest that looks like a bomb, you run the hell the other way and call the cops. Because odds are... It's, it's a guy a with a bomb. So, in the 21st century, this plays out slightly differently. Yeah. Than it did back then. But anyway, Al finds the bomb, which is disguised as a rock. Yeah. I got a rock. Well, I found it funny how he smashed the rock open. Yeah. And the bomb was perfectly fine. He didn't blow the bomb up, smashing the rock open. But did it not seem a bit odd that the stranger would even go to the trouble of hiding the no-life bomb in a rock? Yeah. What's the point? (laughs) Why does he just drop it in the ocean? It, it's his signature, it's an art form. Well, at least he hasn't coloured it. Silly colours like the Zurinarian guy. Yeah. With his bomb or bat radio or whatever the hell it was. Although, after the issue, which was fun, it was fun to read, there's no problem with well, it. It was until the, the bomb bit, which was so bleak and depressing. That's what I was just going to say, and then you get to the ending. Harper's death is horrible. <laughs> yeah. The panel is, is at, it's described in the captions as an acidic smoke burning his flesh, his lungs. And the idea is this poor guy gets eaten alive by acid. Yeah. And it's like, you suddenly, I mean, I know the Silver Surfer's not a heavy comic, but it's not a light read. But you just burned this poor guy <laughs> to death on panel in acid. That was rather shocking. Yeah. One of the biggest criticisms stands right in this era is that often stories will end simply because it's time for them to end. And this one is no different. It has not been explained anywhere that the stranger was testing humanity. And if one person was brave enough to sacrifice himself, then the mission was over. He even does all the carnage wrought in his battle with the surfer, which begs the question, why? Why does he stop? In fact, why does he want to do this in the first place? Why does he not renew his attack? The surfer doesn't seem to be able to stop him. The stranger was a really weak villain with little motivation beyond being the villain. Wasn't he? Mm. Which is shocking. What did you think of this one, Michael? I thought it was really good. Did you? But did you like this one? With a, yeah, with a little bit of funny bits in it. There's a little bit of silver aginess to it. Yeah, yeah. But this is very much straddling the line, isn't it, between the silver and the bronze edge? Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah, it, it is very much a mixture of two eras. It did have a, this a, one. a very definite change of tone near the end, though. Yes, it, it becomes... I mean, Silver Surf stories were always quite heavy and downers. Yeah. Because he's trying to escape back to Zen La. So the mission statement, if you will, is quite a downer. But yeah, the ending was just... Oh, okay. <laughs> the plotting still is very much in the mould of making it up as we go along that typifies a lot of Stan's work without Kirby or Ditko. And there are moments where we learn rather important story points in passing rather than organically as part of the plot. But the ending is purely for pathos, ladling on the drama of this one man, unknown and unassuming, laying down his life for the greater good and for all mankind, a mankind that will never even know what he did. It's the ending that makes this a powerful story. 
In addition, it can't be coincidence that Stan has Al Harper be a black man, contrasting the feelings of alienation the surfer feels against this oh-so-human being. But in true Stan fashion, he never makes any mention of Harper's skin colour, proving that no matter how much we can take the piss out of some elements of these stories, Stan was ahead of the curve in some of his social commentary. There are some goofy moments. The stranger's costume with its loincloth underpants look is a little misguided. And Stan hasn't really got the hand of pacing these 40-page stories yet, with three whole pages in the middle of the issue devoted to flashbacks of the stranger's previous appearances. Yet the conclusion's quite rushed. On the whole, though, the issue is remarkable in that a good, decent and honourable man, Al B. Harper, is killed off in a rather brutal and sudden fashion, with the world none the wiser for his heroism. Quite brave storytelling from Stan and a touch deeper than many of the other stories of this era. So, all that remains is what's the verdict this week? They're not like for like, are they? But this was a fairly representative selection of tales from the era. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't think it would have made a difference even if we'd chosen a later Batman story. Late 50s Batman does have a, a charm all of its own. But I have to be honest, I can't read more than two of them in one sitting before I lose interest. I can pick that Batman in the 50s trade up when I'm having breakfast, read one of them. And I'm, you know, I'm glad I read it, it's fun. I put it back on the shelf and I leave it for another six months before I pick up and read another one from that era. I'm not blind to the imagination on display in those Batman stories, and they are fun, but they've got very little reread appeal for me, even from a nostalgic viewpoint. I mean, there are some 50 stories I enjoy a great deal, The Secret of Batman's Utility Belt, but any time Batman's on an alien world duking it out with pink ETs under yellow skies, I just tune out. It's just not my bag. That's not to say I thought they were bad. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I thought they were perfectly representative of the era and they were perfectly adequate examples of Spider-Man stories of this time. However, the Silver Surfer story suffers likewise, in some ways, many of the problems of the era. It is a little precious. The Surfer's melancholy, self-pitying attitude can get a bit much, even to people like me who adore the character. And this story seems tailor-made to end with a Smith song. <sighs> But Stan was at least trying to make comics more than they had been and better than they were. He uses the surfer in particular to inject some commentary on society. And in some cases, it's rather simplistic commentary, to be sure. But at least it was there and at least he was attempting to do something different. John Buscema's art was also much better than the DC comics this week, Yeah, I thought. So ultimately, who are you going with? I don't know. I really like those Batman stories, and I really like that type of Batman story, but this was also really good. Mm. See, I'm going to go for the surfer for a win on this one, which means that Marvel have won two to one, unless you go for DC, which would give us a deadlock situation. So hard. Well, you picked both of those issues. I picked two Batman issues that I knew would appeal to you as a fan of the Grant Morrison era. One was just the completely outlandish stuff that he was talking about, the yeah. interplanetary Batman. And the other one, the Zurenar, plays directly into Morrison's run. Mm. And the Silver Surfer, lovely listener, we originally picked The Good, the Bad and the Uncanny. Yeah. But in reading that for the show, 
I felt, A, it was a low-key story more than it was a Silver Surfer story. Secondly, the Silver Surfer is dumber than dirt in it, isn't he? Let's be honest. And third, we covered Thor last time. So I didn't really want to cover a story that was Thor and Loki rather than Silver Surfer. This was a Silver Surfer story. Yeah. Well, arguably it was Al B. Harper's story, but you know what I mean. Mm. And I I thought it was a fine example of the kind of Silver Age stories Marvel ended up doing. Whereas with DC, it was kind of a quantum leap. Marvel evolved. Shy away from. Yeah, Marvel evolved over the 60s from being the stuff you were more familiar with but DC was doing to doing that yeah. whereas DC kind of overnight suddenly because became darker and grittier and the the Dark Knight being the Batman being a prime example 1969 all of a sudden it's like the 40s and the 50s never happened hmm. and the 60s never happened and we're starting from here and I've said to you I can take a lead Batman in between 1949 and 1969 yeah but anyway, go on, you've got to make a choice. If it was, if it was just the interplanetary Batman, then it would be the Silver Surfer, but Batman of Zero and R. You're allowed to disagree with me and go DC, you know? Uh, I might have to go with Marvel, actually. Why? What swayed you? Because the Silver Surfer is good, whereas, whereas the Batman ones are entertaining. But they're both products of their era. That they are typical Batman stories of that time. That is a typical issue of the Silver Surfer of that time. They're all angst-ridden melancholia like that. Mm. None of them quite have the impact of that one because of the ending. Yeah. It is. Let's be brutally honest. It's the ending that makes that story. Well, I read issue four as well because you couldn't make your mind up which one you wanted to do. Yeah, and issue five was much better. than Issue four. five was much, but I almost did issue one, which is his origin. Yeah, because issue one's really good. But I always think... I'm never sure about doing that. I mean, we did with The Flash, because that's considered the beginning of the Silver Age. But with all the others, we've picked representative stories. Yeah. I don't really consider origin stories to be representative of the series generally. Mm. So that's ultimately why I went for issue number five. It is representative of the Silver Surfer series, which I love. I've got, this is the, I've got the omnibus of the Silver Surfer, and I love that entire series. Yeah. And the Batman stuff works for the audience that it was intended to work for. But ultimately, I think, if we're going for the criteria of this, is it silly? Yes. And we we kind of have to say the Batman stuff was. Although, within its own internal logic, the Zero and R Batman story actually stands up better than the Silver Surfer one does. Yeah. There's no moments in that Zero and R one where you go, well, you'd think they'd have mentioned that earlier. <laughs> Whereas in the Silver Surfer one, you get to the ending and the ending's quite rushed. Mm. There is no reason for the stranger to stop his attack on Earth at that point. Just because he's... Unless, oh, I've got no more null bombs! Ugh! Run, run away! Flee! So, this is where I found it difficult. The Zero and R story is not one I would pick to read for fun, mostly. Like I said, I'd pick that Batman from the 50s trade-off and have a look at it. But within within its own self, that story's internal logic holds up better than the Silver Surfer one does. But as a whole, the Silver Surfer story is a better comic. So that's why this one was really difficult, but ultimately I plumped for the Surfer because of the ending. There's a lot more pathos to that. And that ending is like a quantum leap up in who the audience for these books were. Yeah.
Batman is clearly aimed at six-year-olds. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it does what it does. It does what it says on the tin. It is a comic book that is aimed at a six-year-old audience, and it would probably entertain them. And it entertained me and you. Yes. But I wouldn't rush out and read any more of that era for fun and pleasure. Mm. When there's plenty of other stuff I'd read. I would read a couple more here and there. Whereas the surface stuff, I, I just want to plough through the entire run. So ultimately, I went for the Silver Surfer. I, I might go with DC then. I've enjoyed more 50s Batman stories than I have Silver Surfer. But you're looking at it from the what ones we've picked tonight. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go with DC. You're going with the DC win. Alright, so we've got one times DC win, one times Marvel win, one times draw. It'll, it'll make it a bit more tense next week. It will, it'll make it a bit more tense next week. Because if, uh, let's be honest, if Marvel had won that, if DC didn't win next week, they're, they're out. Yeah. You know, so. Alright, but I do like that that caused you some consternation. Mm-hmm. Alright, fair enough. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it is the final of our look at the Silver Age of Comics. Which I believe is. Is Superman versus the Amazing Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're covering a Superman story, a Supergirl story, to, to give a feel of the entire Superman family mm-hmm. of that era, and then an Amazing Spider-Man by Liam Ditko. So not a very good one, though. I am going <laughs> to stab you in the eye with this pen when we finish recording. Okay. We'll hope you'll join us next week. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Goodbye. sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. This cold just got hot.
do. 